Jonathan Haidt joins FAIR's Board of Advisors. Barry Weiss's Common Sense is now the free press. And what Elon Musk gets wrong about free speech. Welcome to FAIR News Weekly. To read all of the articles discussed in this podcast, please visit the podcast's episode description. Now a letter from Bayan Bartning. Dear Friends Affair, I am thrilled to announce our newest advisory board member, social psychologist, professor of ethical leadership at New York University, Stern School of Business, founder of Heterodox Academy, and gifted author, Jonathan Haidt. If there's anyone who can explain the zeitgeist of our times and the impact of social media on our discourse and culture, it is John. Last year, a month or two after launching FAIR, and in the midst of the COVID pandemic, my wife and I were invited to join a small in-person event to discuss possible solutions to the growing illiberalism and intolerance that had affected my kids' school and other K-12 schools across the country. I was there trying to make sense of what had happened and how to solve this problem, and John was one of the few people offering answers that made sense. Over the past two years, as I have worked to establish FAIR as a much-needed civil rights organization, John has been helpful and supportive and encouraged me every step of the way. Here's John's statement on why he signed up to join FAIR's Board of Advisors. The first 50 years of my life, from 1963 to 2013, were the greatest period of societal progress and the extension of rights and inclusion in human history. Progressives should have been celebrating success and vowing to continue on toward the fulfillment of Martin Luther King's dream. Instead, because of the changes to social media platforms in the early 2010s, new, terrible, and illiberal ideas flooded into universities, and from there to the rest of our institutions. I co-founded Heterodox Academy to push back against illiberalism in universities. I joined FAIR's advisory board because FAIR is pushing back everywhere else. Bayan continues, I am deeply grateful to John for his support of FAIR and our mission of advancing civil rights and liberties for all Americans and promoting a common culture based on fairness, understanding, and humanity. Welcome to the team, John. Thank you for joining the pro-human movement. Yours, Bayan Bartning. This week on our Substack, Dennis Safran wrote about his personal experience with racial preferences and why he believes we should judge people as individuals rather than as representatives of a racial group. He says, I didn't think of my parents' conversation again until eight or nine years later when racial preferences in hiring and college admissions were first instituted in response to the demands of the radical progressive movements of the late 60s. By then, I was a part of those movements, full of the sanctimonious certainty of a 14-year-old and righteous fury at the racism of my relatives who hadn't regarded colored people, for which, of course, I substituted whatever name was then in vogue, highly enough. To most observers, I perfectly fit the mold of a supporter of these new racial preferences. Yet, as much as it would have helped my progressive bona fides, I couldn't bring myself to buy in. The logical implication of that conversation my parents had kept coming back to me. If setting the bar higher for Dr. Robinson than for whites, as it almost certainly had been in the days of Jim Crow, led people, even some those inclined towards prejudice, to rationally conclude that he was probably more qualified than white doctors held to a lesser standard, then why shouldn't the reverse apply as well? If standards were lowered for black medical school or law school or college applicants, wouldn't it be equally natural to assume that, on balance, They were less qualified and competent than their white counterparts? 
And what would that do for race relations in a society that was just taking its first baby steps towards Dr. King's dream of judging people based on the content of their character rather than the color of their skin? For her Substack, Fair Advisor Lisa Celine Davis spoke with Fair Advisor Xander Keg about why reasonable people can have different perspectives on transgender issues and the importance of measured, compassionate conversations. Davis writes, And so the people that are on this so-called extremes of the for and against are people that are arguing from a perspective who might not know that they hold that perspective. Or if they do, Keg says, they might not recognize that other perspectives are also held by people and that perhaps they're legitimate as a viewpoint. That doesn't mean they're legitimate for making law or policy or statute or ordinance. Right. That should be handled by more reasonable-minded people that aren't using that kind of influence and that kind of, you know, power dynamic. So I'd say that, you know, we have to recognize that we all have different core values. We all have different worldviews. We all have different moral foundations. Right. And so one of the things that I do as a social worker is I coach people and I do trainings on getting more familiar with the self as a clinician and investigating these things like... What is my worldview? What are my core values? What are my moral foundations? What kind of intervention models do I prefer? What theoretical orientation do I hold as a clinician? Most people can graduate school and not know any of these things about themselves. And so that's something I bring to the trans community as well. Fair advisor Barry Weiss announced that Common Sense, the substack she started last year, is now the free press. She writes... The free press is built on the ideals that remain the bedrock of American journalism. Honesty, doggedness, and fierce independence. You didn't know it at the time, but you're one of our many founders. You have read, shared, and commented on our most important stories from the past year. Stories such as how the ideological takeover of American medicine and law has endangered our health and our rights. How schools are indoctrinating even our youngest children into a belief that racism is everywhere and that biological sex doesn't exist. How vulnerable teens are being pushed into experimental gender transition. And how our public health scientists failed to follow the science. We brought you shocking accounts from around the world about Canada's new euthanasia laws, China's global ambitions, and how it is capturing the minds of young Americans. And love in the time of war in Ukraine. We reported on the stories that you thought you knew, but didn't, like the real story of the Central Park Karen. And every Friday in TGIF, Nellie Bowles summarizes our week with her inimitable wit. I started Common Sense because I knew I had something to say that wasn't being said about the world around us. Now my colleagues and I have a new home for honest news, lucid opinion, and a community of people who think for themselves. We need one address, one home, one platform you can trust. For the best independent journalism out there. Today, the free press becomes that place. For time, Fair Advisor Jakob Mashigama, the CEO of Justicia and author of Free Speech, a history from Socrates to social media, wrote about what he believes Elon Musk gets wrong about free speech. He says, But you don't have to be an Elon stan or subscribe to Musk's half-baked free speech philosophy to worry that free expression isn't taken seriously enough by global digital platforms. Legally, the protection of free speech is primarily a relationship between government and citizens, but a thriving culture of free speech depends on a broad societal tolerance of ideas that fly in the face of polite opinion and established orthodoxy. 
Indeed, social media companies' content moderation policies matter. No single government in history has ever been able to exert such extensive control over what is being said, read, and shared by so many people across the world in real time. In short, there is a compelling case to be made for why free speech should be strengthened, not weakened on social media. But the skeptics are unlikely to be persuaded by a conception of free speech based on the partisan grievances and trolling. Instead, Musk should focus on demonstrating how the benefits of a more robust commitment to free speech on Twitter might outweigh the harms. For Yasha Monk's substack, Persuasion, Seth Moskowitz wrote about how Americans are more united on how they teach our history than we are led to believe. This divide among the most strident ideologues, he writes, will perhaps not be all that surprising to those who have read the 1619 Project curriculum or have seen Tucker Carlson's hysteric coverage of middle school history curriculum. But while they make a lot of noise and are overrepresented in the media, ideologues from both the left and the right compromise a relatively small slice of the American public, about 15% altogether. Unfortunately, those who make up the more extreme ends of the political spectrum seem to have an outsized influence on a number of our institutions, including media, political parties, and universities. But Americans should not let these extremists create the illusion that the rest of us are in irreconcilable disagreement on the issue of how to teach history. The vast majority of Americans want students to be taught a curriculum that includes the good parts of the country's history as well as the bad, that treats historical events and figures as multidimensional, and that doesn't teach students to feel guilty on behalf of previous generations. In other words, Americans want to teach history with the complexity it deserves rather than the simplicity that a political agenda would require. For Quillette, Matt Johnson wrote about how liberal democracy has once again proved itself capable of overcoming its internal challenges and contradictions. Johnson states, Despite the evidence of political decay in liberal democracies over the past several years, democratic governments and societies have proven more resilient than their authoritarian enemies expected. Putin's invasion of Ukraine was met with the strongest display of European and transatlantic unity in decades. The authoritarian response to COVID that China could boast about two years ago has turned into a humiliating nightmare for its government and people, as democratic countries manage the disease and return to normal while Chinese citizens continue to suffer under oppressive and economically devastating restrictions. Amid the outrage over the fire, many Chinese have also expressed frustration at the footage of unmasked football fans at the World Cup, the sort of event they're unable to attend. Most importantly, democratic procedures and institutions have proven their durability during a series of authoritarian onslaughts from within, particularly in the United States, but also in Brazil and elsewhere around the world. We want the first Substack to be the go-to publication for diverse perspectives on culture and civil rights. Whether you're a seasoned author or an amateur writer with a story that can contribute to our mission of promoting fairness, understanding, and humanity, we would love to receive your stories, opinions, investigations, reviews, interviews, and more. Please send your piece to submissions at fairforall.org. We hope to hear from you. Finally, if you liked this podcast, subscribe, share with a friend, and leave us a rating and review. Make sure to check out our newsletter and weekly roundup to read more into any of this week's stories or visit the episode description. Donations are always welcome at fairforall.org slash donate.